This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm here with Mark Alley, our Editor-in-Chief. Good morning. Hey, Mark. It is a good morning. We might not get rain today, which would be nice. Our guest is not in the morning. In fact, our guest is in the evening. Yes. Our guest is Songbok David Kim. He's Chancellor of Torch Trinity Graduate University in Korea, where he also has served as president in the past. He's also Global Ambassador of the Transform World Network, and he's held many academic and pastoral positions in Korea and the United States. And he's the perfect guest to talk about our topic today. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, David, it's great to talk to you, even though we're hours apart from each other. Right. Now now is uh, 10, 10 at night. Yeah. Over here, okay. it's eight ten in the morning. We're just waking up. David, have you spent any time in Chicago, in this area? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, my daughters went to school there. Yeah. Uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and uh, Wheaton College. All right. Well, we're located just a couple minutes away from Wheaton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. Well, let's get into our discussion today. So this week, President Trump met with. Kim Jong-un in Singapore. The meeting between the two heads of state was announced earlier this spring before Trump canceled it. Later, South Korean leaders helped make the meeting a reality. We both want to do something. We both are going to do something. And we have developed a very special bond, Trump said at the end of their meeting this week. People are going to be very impressed. People are going to be very happy. President Trump and Kim signed a document in which Kim reaffirmed his, quote, firm and unwavering commitment to completely denuclearize the Korean peninsula. In exchange, Trump said that he would, quote, provide security guarantees to North Korea. Earlier this spring, South Korean President Moon Jae-in and North Korea's Supreme Leader, we mentioned Kim, met in the first inter-Korean summit in more than 11 years. This meeting was historic for a number of reasons, not the least of which, for the first time since 1953, a North Korean leader entered South Korea. By and large, most South Koreans have supported their country's effort to promote peace in the region. Multiple polls leading up to this meeting um, suggested that more than three-fourths of the population backed diplomacy. One perspective that's been heard little from in the Western media has been that of the South Korean church. Christians make up about 30% of the population, and nearly 20% of the population is Protestant. So today on the podcast, we'd like to explore the landscape of South Korean Christianity and how this community understands North Korea. Before we get into all of our questions, I'd like to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. And in particular, I just wanted to remind everyone what they would get if they became a subscriber So one of the articles that we had in this most recent June issue was called Getting Our Accent Right, Recognizing and Making the Most of an Enculturated Gospel. And it's by an Australian author um, who just talks about evangelism and particularly 
communicating with other people, specifically when you were trying to share the gospel with them. Um, the thing that I thought was really interesting and just like helpful for almost anyone reading this article, um, even if you're not a Christian, is just the way that it talked about the importance of communicating to people in their cultural context, especially and regardless of what you have to say. I think sometimes we think that you can just according to like, as we talked about in our online title, you can just give people the gospel. Or if something's true, you can just share that with them and they're going to understand. But this article did an interesting job of talking about how people hear things different ways based on where they're coming from, which I think many of us kind of recognize, but often don't necessarily flesh out all of the consequences and ramifications of that. So if you wanted to read that article in our print magazine, it's called Getting Our Accent Right. And in our online publication, it is called Why You Can't Just Give People the Gospel. Um, and it's available, again, to Christianity Today subscribers. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. So, David, we are super happy to have you on the show. I think before we dive into some of the more recent things that we're talking about, with North Korea, it'd actually be really helpful just to kind of start about how Christianity became a really major religion in South Korea. When did that start? Yes, the Korean people were going through the time of grave economic challenges during and following the Korean War in the early 1950s. And Korea was one of the poorest nations in the world at that time. But the gospel of Jesus Christ offered the Korean people a great uh, hope and faith and love. So as they worked so hard for better living, uh, they needed faith in the Almighty God, hope for the future, and the love of God in their hearts. So Christian faith provided what they really needed. Uh, in 1973, a Billy Graham uh, evangelist crusade in Seoul, uh, when they had about a million people, the largest gathering ever, really, this evangelist crusade triggered, I think, the flame of faith in the people. Uh, one million people gathered every night, and the message, uh, his messages raised uh, hope for the people. And all out evangelistic effort fanned the flame into a wildfire for the following two decades. Churches growing in a certain years as, as high as 13.5 annually. Uh, however, today the growth considerably slowed down after rapid growth. And that's where we are now. Well, we have now about 27,000 Korean missionaries in 175 countries around the world. That has been a great increase of the Korean missionaries. And not only the churches, the Korean missionaries, but also the Korean people in general uh, are living right now in 170 countries around the world. Wherever they are, they have churches. But I think, let's say, 7.5 million Koreans are living out there in the world. Yeah, that was a that was the topic of a cover story some years ago. Just the uh, missionary energy of uh, the Korean Church. What are the various types of Christian faith that are there? Uh, I know Presbyterians are prominent, Pentecostals are prominent. Are those the two main groups, or are there other groups? The largest group is Presbyterians, and then Methodist, uh, and then um, the Holiness group. Baptist group, and then Pentecostals, and then independent churches. And then there's a Catholic, about uh, 8% of Korean population, uh, Roman Catholics. And all of those different denominations exist because of 
foreign missionaries or are any of them the result of Koreans just starting the church there? Mm -hmm. So why would you say there are so many Presbyterians in South Korea? There were two uh, missionaries who came to Korea first time in 1885. And one of them was Presbyterian, the other was Methodist. And those two landed on the same date, uh, the day of the Easter. So when they arrived at the Incheon, Airport, uh, Incheon port, they were arguing who's going to go down to on the land first. So it says, uh, the Presbyterian says, I cannot let you land uh, first on, in Korea, then you will claim that you're the first one. The Methodist says, no. I, I cannot let you go down there first. So they've been arguing back and forth, and finally they agree that, uh, well, why don't we hold our hand together? We count one, two, three, and, and land at the same time. There you so, go. <laughs> so nobody can claim to be the first. <laughs> but uh, uh, they worked very hard, and the Northern Presbyterians and Southern Presbyterians and Australian Presbyterians and British Presbyterians there are a lot of a lot more Presbyterian missionaries came to Korea, and as a result of that, uh, there are more Presbyterian than any other group. Wow, I know that to some extent, Korean Christianity kind of has a reputation of not getting along with each other, or that it can be kind of divisive. Can you say more about that? Yes, uh, there is not much of a doctrinal disagreement uh, as such among the Korean Christians. We all confess the Apostles' Creed during the uh, worship on every Sunday, and we all do the same thing. I mean, regardless of the denomination, we all confess Apostles' Creed together, and there's no problem. We have one Bible and one hymn book, and uh, there are different denominations, but I don't see very much of a difference among them. However, it appears that we have never learned to uh, the skill to relate to one another or accept others who are different from one another. When we don't like someone, we just don't know how to work with them. This is one of the major problems I see. I, we often go separate way, therefore. So issue is not the doctrinal knowledge or agreement, but I think the main issue is spiritual maturity. We've been strong in evangelism, but we've been, I think, weak in sanctification. So how does that manifest or look like? Have you had some key denominations split? Yes. Um, sorry to say, but when I first left for United States to study theology in 1965, we had four major Presbyterian denominations. After 26 years in United States, and teaching and pastoring, and I came back to Korea, I discovered there's 170 <laughs> wow. Presbyterian denomination, little ones, major ones, and I was just so disappointed and so, so upset. I mean, from four to 170, more than <laughs> 170 denominations, I mean, same Presbyterian denominations, uh, that has been one of the weakest points of uh, Korean uh, Presbyterian churches. Well, you say is the strongest point of uh, certainly the, their missionary fervor is one strong point. Are there other things that are particularly good about the Korean church in general? They are very uh, enthusiastic about their faith, and they serve 
well, and they worked hard in evangelism and giving and prayers and Bible studies uh, in those areas, and missions as well. Now, theological education is very good now. When I left uh, in 1965, we had only less than 10 theological doctors uh, doctors in theology. Now we have more than two or three thousand PhDs in theology now. And every seminary is, is uh, occupied by great scholars. So these areas, we are very strong. But this area of, I say, sanctification or Christian maturity, or Christian growth and skills to relate to each other, and this is the area we are suffering most, I think. Yeah, the stories I've heard, I don't know how widespread the practice is, is of Korean Christians gathering early in the morning before work for prayer meetings on a regular basis. Right, I did. I did too uh, when I was little. We used to go to church at 5 o'clock in the morning. I mean, every church is like that. Not everybody comes to the morning prayer, but all the churches in Korea have what we call it a dawn prayer meetings, and still we do. I'm curious, you were talking earlier about this Billy Graham crusade that you felt kind of was a catalyst for the explosion of Korean Christianity, but you also mentioned that you were obviously a Christian before that happened. So how did you become a Christian then? Uh, I was born of uh, Christian parents. I'm the third generation uh, Christian. Uh, I've been very faithful in the church and going to Sunday schools and going to junior, senior high group and college group. And I've been active as a Sunday school teacher or sometimes assistant to Sunday school teachers and choir members and all of that. I've been very active at the church, yet... One thing I didn't quite understand was the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, why he died on the cross and what it did for me. Uh, I, heard of, I heard about these things, but I didn't quite understand it. And uh, I was always nervous and worried and afraid that if Jesus would return, I may not be the one who will be taken up. So I was always fearful of that. And one Sunday morning, during the communion service, for the first time in my life, God spoke to me and says, uh, I love you, not because of you, because I'm God and I'm love. I love you with eternal love, and I give eternal life, not because of your righteousness or your behavior or who you are. I love you because you are my creature, and my son Jesus died for you for eternity. And one day that just, it just... Uh, opened my eyes and my mind and heart, and I understood the gospel. I fell on the floor, and I couldn't get up because I was so overwhelmed as I understood the gospel so clearly. First time, that's when I was uh, 25 years old, and that changed everything. It just changed all my, all my life and turned me around, and finally I became a minister. Wow. You mentioned that you were part of a third-generation Christian household. Do you know how your grandparents learned about Christianity? Yes. The Australian missionaries came to the southern part of Korea called Busan, which is a port city. That's where they started um, the school for the girls. There was uh, five students first time. That was 1900, the year of 1900. They, began, they planted a school. There were five girls, 
And one of those five was my grandmother. And in those days, the girls are not allowed to go to school. It was a shame to go to school for for the girls. And uh, her father found out that she joined the school, and she was a, he was so angry with her and took her away from the school and, and took to the countryside and, and hid her so that she may not go to school. But she locked herself uh, inside the house and, and uh, started fasting and uh, hunger strike. And father realized that he may lose his daughter so father surrendered and let her go to that, that Christian school. Wow, that's amazing. So that's where he gra- she graduated and became one of the first female Christian leaders in the southern part of Korea. And that same missionary visited uh, my maternal grandfather's village, a fishing village. And uh, my grandfather's house was big and there was a tall tree, old, old tree, where all the villagers come with their food and drinks and pour them for their ancestral spirit and bow and worship. And this missionary came and saw this, and he was watching them doing that, and he told my grandfather, why do you serve a tree? There's God who made this tree. You should worship God who made the tree, not the tree itself. And that really got to my my, uh, maternal grandfather. And uh, he said to himself, well, if there is a God who made his tree, and I should worship that God. So he went to uh, the city and rented a big saw and came to his tree and and asked the villagers to help him to cut this tree down. And and everybody was scared. No, you're trying to cut our God down. So finally... Nobody helped, and he worked many hours and to cut this big tree. And when it fell down, there was a big hole in the middle, and the long and big centipedes crawled out of there and crawled into the fields. So my grandfather said, "My, we've been giving our food to this fellow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to worship this tree anymore. I'm going to worship God." And here. My my father's uh, mother, my mother's grandmother, both of them were reached by the same missionary. And that's how we became a Christian family. Now, our children's children, a fifth generation Christians. And I'm the first minister. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. So one thing that I wanted to talk about was about how the Korean War and having, you know, a division with, with having these two countries kind of affected the Christianity that did exist in Korea. Because I'm assuming when the war ended, there were Christians that were on both sides of the border. 
one time before the Korean War, North Korea was the Christian part, not the South. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Uh, uh, the Pyongyang, the capital city of North Korea, is called um, Oriental Jerusalem, because I still remember I was born in North Korea, and uh, I was born in Pyongyang, the North Korea, uh, the capital city. On Sundays, I used to see a lot of people on the street in you know, white dresses and costumes and carrying their Bibles and hymn book in their hand and going to the church. Church were everywhere. You know, the North Korea was the center of Christianity in, in Korea, including theological seminary and Christian college and all of that. And uh, there were 3,000 churches there. But after the war, it all, all wiped out. All Christians were sent to jail and they were killed and to uh, labor camps and 3,000 churches all abolished. And that's the way it has been in North Korea. So during the war, Christians fled North Korea, including myself, down to the south. The Christian leaders came from North Korea down to the south and stayed started church. Uh, some of the major churches in South Korea had been pastored by the North Korean ministers. And North, South Korean evangelism and the growth was greatly affected by the North Korean leaders and Christian leaders who came down south during the war. Yeah, so when they came down south, then they were starting churches and ministries as well? Oh, yes. So their churches all became the mega churches in South Korea. So uh, what's your understanding of the situation of the church in North Korea today? I understand there are still are Christians there, but they're having to work secretly, or how do you, how do you understand it? There are secret Christians, um, but if you get caught, you go, you are sent to labor camp to die there. You don't come out there. Even today, there are some Christians hiding and worshiping secretly and whis singing and whispering, but we don't know for sure how many of them. Uh, some guesses, maybe 100,000 Christians there, uh, secret Christians. When they went to cross the border into China to get the food, there were South Korean missionaries there. And they reached them with the Gospels, and the Chinese churches reached them with the Gospel, and many of them went back to North Korea and witnessed to their own uh, families. There are many South Korean missionaries went to northeast side of China, the other side of the border between North Korea and, and China. There are a lot of uh, South Korean missionaries there. They are the ones who reach those North Koreans who crossed the border into China and then took them under their care and preached the gospel and Bible studies. But um, it is very, very difficult for, for the Christian people in North Korea. There is uh, three churches, though, built by the North Korean government, two Protestant churches, one Catholic church. And it's an official government church to show that to show to the world that they have religious freedom, which in fact they do not. But it it, it just showcases uh, churches are there, uh, but those real Christians are really suffering greatly. From what I've read, when North Koreans do make it into South Korea, it's often very difficult for them to fit in culturally and to be accepted by South Korean culture? Why do you think it's so hard for them? North Koreans 
mindset in South Koreans are so different. North Koreans, um, as I said earlier, there's no freedom. You cannot think on your own. You cannot speak on your own. You cannot travel uh, anywhere without permit. And they are just, all they have to do is just obey and work. And they never initiated their own to work or start something. They cannot, they are not allowed to do that. So when they come to South Korea, this is a free land. Government provide them apartment and money and some training. And young people, government send them to schools and the universities. And they, many of them are doing quite well. But when they come, this is a free world. And they are lost. Because they never lived in freedom. They didn't know what to do and how to do it and where to begin. So government and the people try to help them. But sometimes they don't adjust themselves to new free life in South Korea. But many of them are doing quite well and adjusting themselves. Would you say that there is a lot of anger and frustration towards North Korea on the part of South Koreans? Yeah, uh, we feel very sad about North Korea because we are one people with the same blood, same culture, same language. All of us are hardworking and smart people. But the difference between the two sides of Korea, they live in poverty and fear, and they live like slaves. It's not just now, but last last 70 years, the Kim Jong-un's grandfather and his father, now the third generation dictators, they really made the people suffer so much. And and uh, so many people were killed, and so many people died in labor camps, and they they went hungry. And I mean, we are the same people. South Korea live uh, today, economically speaking. South Korea is uh, 46 times richer than North Korea. There's the only difference between the two parts of the Korea is the freedom. Freedom made a difference. I mean, this is just a big shame. They are just as capable as we are. Uh, they are not any worse than we are. Why? Why is this? The only reason is the political system and the dictator. So many South Koreans are upset and angry at him, but Christians still pray for him that God will touch him and change his heart and hope that uh, that happens. Would you say that South Korean Christians, are they afraid at all of North Korea, especially with the nuclear weapons? Yes, yes, because North Korea has been threatening South Korea at least two or three times a year. We want to make uh, Seoul uh, a city of fire or I mean, things like that. They always say that. And they make, they, they make weapons and they shoot our Navy boat down and they... they they shoot uh, the cannonballs into uh, islands of South Korea, and they will shoot out our people on the on the beach and kill them. I mean, we've been we've been, we had this for for over the years. We are very sorry that uh, they have behaved like that. But I hope and pray that uh, this time uh, this man Kim Jong Un would really change his thinking and uh, his style to come up with a better life for his own people and also good relationship with South Korea. So I'm curious, if I walked into a South Korean church this past Sunday, 
do you think they would be preaching at all about North Korea? Oh, yes. Uh, in the first place, you will hear a prayer for the congregation, the pastoral prayer or elder, someone uh, representing the congregation pray. They always pray for North Korea. What do they pray for, for about North Korea? Uh, for freedom, for evangelism, for the transformation of the North Korean leaders, and uh, God will be merciful to them and to us so that uh, nation will be unified so that we can go up there to evangelize the North Koreans and plant uh, uh, 15,000 churches everywhere. So after you guys pray, there might be more talks from the, in the sermon? Occasionally, yes. Not every day, but uh, for instance, my church. We have about 150 North Korean defectors in our church. We have a special ministry for them. Our church people was assigned to each family, and then those who are assigned will care for them uh, in many different ways. This week and next next three weeks, uh, we call it uh, North Korean Mission Week. And there are various events organized to experience North Korean life and uh, stir up the uh, desires within them and love for the North Korea and North Korean people and try to take care of the North Korean defectors who are here. Wow, you said your church has 150 defectors? Yes. And and it sounds like these defectors know about your church and know to come here to get help. Yes. How did that ministry start? Oh, you know, as I told you, I am a North Korean. I was one of the original North Korean defectors. <laughs> way back in 1950. So my heart is there. So I, I quite often talked about North Korea and North Korean people and evangelism and how to help them. We helped North Korea a lot over the years, various ways, the food, medicines, and uh, milk for the babies and hospitals and schools. And we've been helping them. Our, our church has been helping them. Even we provided this North Korean church, which is built by the government. We we pro, we gave them uh, an electric organ for the worship service, and I visited them a few times. So we've been we've been involved in, uh, with the North Korean work many years, and I was the chairman of uh, North Korean Rebuilding Committee in Korea, and I was the chairman to come up with a national plan for rebuilding North Korean churches, at least first 3,000 which were there. Whereas if God opens the door, 3,000 churches in South Korea know exactly where to go. Wow, that's planning. We will we'll all go up at the same time with a team and uh, replant these churches, 3,000 churches. We had a complete plan and we already published the uh, informations, and uh, the South Korean churches are assigned to the major churches, 3,000 churches are assigned to certain location for the North Korean church. And we had this, we had this plan, and I was the one who engineered it. Wow. When did you, what was the year that you started working on this plan? We started in 1994. It took four years to, to complete it because we have to work with all the denomination together. So it took a long time, and we planned it very carefully. We div- there were 3,000 churches in North Korea, and uh, 
we divided 3,000 churches according to the number of churches in South Korea, uh, the denominations. If it's a large denomination, we assign them like uh, 600 churches. Smaller denomination like a Baptist churches, 150 churches, something like that. And my own church wanted to plant, re- replant my own church where I used to go in North in Pyongyang. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you wouldn't undertake that planning and all that work if you didn't have some solid hope that this was a real possibility in the near future. Is that how you feel? Right. At that time, North Korea is about to topple down. Ah. Because of the famine? Right. There was a, three million people died and the government was ready to fall. So we had to come up with a concrete plan very fast, but it took four years to do it. But it, it didn't fall because South Korea helped them <laughs> and all those helps came. <laughs> we were expecting them to fall, but it didn't. So we, we have a plan, but uh, this plan has been 20 years old. And recently, in fact, last week, there was another North Korean mission conference. And I told them, now this plan is 20 years old. So now you have to bring it up to date. And we're challenging the younger generation to them, I mean, about this plan. My favorite thing about your plan is that it's working with all the different denominations that exist in Korea. And you're not saying that one particular church is going to plant all of those. It's working with everybody. Working with all the denominations. We, we, we gathered the leaders of each denomination and then we worked together, we discussed it, and we planned it together. So there was no problem among ourselves. I think this was the, f- the first and the only project where entire Korean churches worked together. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, then, that, that that was able to bring Christians together in that way. Yes, that was the grace of God. Is there anywhere that you really want to point out that you see God working or moving in the North Korean and South Korean churches today? I see this, the South and North Korean summit, which was held a month ago, month or so ago. I'm glad for it. We don't know for sure, because this kind of meeting has been there for a number of times, and there are many treaties and documents signed, but it was just paper. It's never been kept by the North Koreans. And this time, one more time, you signed and you met and you agreed, and we're hopeful, but this time it would be real, real change. And uh, now North and United States met for the first time, and this is a good sign. Uh, but again, those things have, have, we had this before, we've seen this before, but never materialized uh, before. So we are hopeful and we are praying God will this time uh, work on the hearts of the leaders so that there may be a genuine changes, transformation, that uh, the country will be working together, not hostile to each other. So in America, as you know, since you lived here for a long time, we have many evangelicals who are like an important political constituency, and often politicians try to get the evangelical vote out. Um, would you say that Korean evangelicals also are a political constituency in Korea, and that they kind of all vote the same way or have the same political preferences? No, not as much as evangelicals in the United States. They are not 
unorganized group as a political force. However, one thing we all agree among the evangelicals is that we pray for them. We pray for North Korea. If the Lord opens the door, we will be the one who will go up there and evangelize and plant the churches quickly in a short time. We all agree on that, that issue. Prayer in itself is very political. So in that regard, they're political. That is to say, they're using the power of prayer to try to, in a sense, change the course of history, to bring freedom to people. David, this was a really great conversation. So thank you so much for telling us all these different parts of North and South Korean Christianity. And I'm yeah, glad that we could hear more about what it's like over in your part of the world. Um, if anyone has any feedback that they'd like to share with us, they can send us an email. We're at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share with our listeners something that is bringing them joy. You ready to go, Mark? Yes. This last weekend was Grandpa Weekend for me. All we right. welcomed our fifth grandchild into the world uh, in New Orleans. Big moment. A lot of texting going back and forth and pictures and such. And Very then exciting. I, yeah. And then I spent the Sunday morning at a fishing derby with my two local grandchildren. So congratulations. Thank you. That's very fun. I'm sure you're excited for your daughter to have her first one. It, we are, and we'll be visiting her this weekend. My wife will be staying a week. I'll be staying the weekend and get to see him in the flesh. Very cool. All right. Where can people find you outside of here? I publish something called The Galley Report. It's a newsletter that comes out weekly, and you can uh, read a sample issue and then subscribe if you so wish. It's a series of uh, links to articles that I find interesting with some commentary. You can find it at christianitytoday.com slash the galley report, G-A-L-L-I report. Awesome. All right, David, your turn. Yeah, uh, I'm coming to Chicago uh, in two weeks uh, to see my my oldest granddaughter getting married in Chicago. Oh, boy. I'll be there. <laughs> wow. So you have a, a do both of your kids? live in Chicago still or how did who lives in Chicago? Uh my one granddaughter go to Whitten College and one graduated and getting married in Chicago. That's very cool. How many grandkids do you have? Uh six of them. Okay. All right, Marcus. I have five. I'm catching up. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a website, David, or is there some place people can find out more about you? I have Facebook. Facebook S B David Kim, I think. Okay. My precious moment. So one thing that I got to do yesterday was go on a yacht on Lake Michigan, which is Ooh. obviously very cool. <laughs> and I, what I, one thing that was awesome about it is I've been kind of grumpy about the fact that it's been like very overcast here in Chicago the past couple of days. And there's actually been a decent amount of fog, which I don't really associate with Chicago at all. But um, when we were on Lake Michigan last night, the fog actually looked really, really cool um, when you could see the skyline and the buildings. And so I shouldn't have been as grumpy about that as the bottom line. Yep. So people can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. We appreciate everyone who also rate and reviews our show on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is available almost everywhere that you want to get a podcast, including SoundCloud and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts and so forth. 
This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.